For those who are less familiar with our church, let me just say that tonight's conversation is, is fairly unusual. This is not what we typically do on a Sunday night, and it's not a biblical sermon. It's not an attempt to be one. But tonight is a church family conversation aimed at encouraging a biblical response to the political turmoil that continues to roil our nation and draws us in on that conversation. Most recently, on January 6th, our nation's Capitol building was breached by a, a rabble-rousers that uh, entered into the building, and, and most were evidently, it seems, driven by a conviction that President Trump won the presidential election in, by his guarantee in a landslide, but that a network of election officials collaborated to fraudulently steal the election from Trump and hand it to Biden. As we addressed uh, that background just briefly last time, I sought to just make four basic points. The first was to condemn this breach of the Capitol as a violation of God's will, who certainly don't support it or any of the sin that took place there just to make that clear. And then secondly, uh, I sought to argue that the blame went very wide uh, and in many directions. There was blame to go around in a lot of different places. I won't get back into that. And then thirdly, to encourage a proper management of media in our lives as we seek to filter what is true and how do we, what do we trust and what do we put our, our thoughts uh, toward. And then fourthly, to keep our focus on our identity in Christ. What Jesus has done to unite us and to draw us together is far greater than any divisions we may experience politically or really that this world might experience. As time permits, I'd like to answer some of the questions that have been submitted. I won't do that directly with any one of them, but just to, uh, in a sense, address those and reflect upon them as we have opportunity and then, as, as there's time, maybe just a bit of a sense of what's going on. What are we facing right now? Why is our nation in the place that it, that it is? Um, and let me stress again, before, well, before I do that, that first we'll hear from Pastors Paul and Rich, as they, I think, have a, a snippet of information here in a brief period of time that I think is very important for us to consider. And so I think that will be very helpful and uh, let me stress, as the three of us speak tonight, that we would say that our political views as pastors are ultimately irrelevant. Uh, they, what We have opinions, we think certain things, uh, they are not uh, biblically rooted as such, though we want to try to think from a biblical worldview. And that's what we're trying to do, is just put that together and to be of help to the church tonight. But our singular goal tonight is to try to help us think that way, to think biblically about how to interpret our world and uh, how to look at our lives as citizens of Christ's kingdom in this earthly kingdom, as salt and light in a dark world. We certainly don't know everything that happened on January 6th as the Capitol was, was stormed. But one thing that was definitely clear and deeply troubling is how many were driven by religious motivations, believing that God wanted them to do it. You've probably seen images reflecting that. 
There was a 40-year-old woman from Texas identified as an evangelical Christian. She flew to D.C. after she received what she called a burning bush sign from God to participate, following her pastor urging congregants to stop the steal. One said this was about revival, not threats. Another said, I wanted to get inside so I could plead the blood of Jesus over it. That was my goal. And the worst example of this, in my opinion, was when after an expletive-laden romp through the Senate chamber, QAnon Shaman, the guy who looks like Thor, led a, led a group in prayer. Jesus Christ, we invoke your name. And he proceeded to offer thanks for allowing the United States to be reborn, concluding with the words, we love you and we thank you. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Now I would hope that all of us are deeply troubled by all of this, this use of Christian symbolism and references in what was done. And I fully agree with Russell Moore who said, the side of Jesus saves and God bless America signs by those violently storming the Capitol is about more than just inconsistency. It's about a picture of Jesus Christ and his gospel that is satanic. The mixing of the Christian religion with crazed and counter-biblical cults, such as QAnon, is telling the outside world that this is what the gospel is. But that's a lie. And it's blasphemous against the holy God. Now, many have described what we saw on January 6th in this vein as an expression of Christian nationalism or Christian Americanism, which I like better. I, I read that description from Michael Horton. One historian defines it as an American identity, as understanding of an American identity and significance held by Christians, wherein the nation is a central actor in the world historical purposes of the Christian God. There's not a whole lot written on this yet. The meaning is a bit ambiguous. But a general description could probably be something like this. America is God's chosen nation. And like Israel in the Old Testament, we have a special covenant with God. If we break it, we will be destroyed, just like Israel, and God will remove his blessing. Cultural changes, like taking prayer out of public schools, legalizing abortion and gay marriage, threaten that covenant. And if we allow Hillary or Biden to be president, they're going to put the nail in the coffin of the covenant and America will be done. Christianity will be outlawed and persecution will arrive. As author and radio host Eric Metaxas put it, America is the last hope of Christianity. That's what he said. America is the last hope of Christianity. Now those who really believe this and are convinced that this is the moment God is going to judge us feel justified then to do what is, whatever is necessary to maintain this Christian nation for God's purposes, even if it means carrying out acts of violence in the name of their faith. I think the, but I think the Christian historian Thomas Kidd rightly observed that there really aren't that many who 
rationally choose this position and self-identify as American nationalists. It's really more of a visceral reaction that can be really subtle. So, take for example Johnny, who grew up, who grew up seeing the Christian and American flag at the front of their church, and he came to see love of country and love of faith is pretty much the same thing. Perhaps then Johnny was the one who came up with the yard sign that reads, making faith great again, Trump 2020, whatever on earth that means. Even though what we saw expressed at the Capitol is the, is the extreme and is certainly not representative of evangelical Christianity, as some in the media have said, I think it's important to consider the flaws of Christian Americanism, particularly since to one degree or another, various aspects of it can be embraced by all Christians. There's a lot of points at which this thinking does not line up with Scripture. But it seems that the most fundamental and perhaps most significant is its position that America replaces the church or at least functionally supplants it or minimizes it as the primary vessel of God's providential plan in his promise of covenantal blessings. Scripture makes it clear that in the new covenant there is no holy nation in the geopolitical sense. Rather, Christ has established a universal kingdom, bringing salvation to the ends of the earth by the gospel. This good news is not a Christian society or a political system, whether democratic or totalitarian, capitalist or socialist. It's the announcement of the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not say to Peter, upon this rock, I will build America and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As Moeller has said well, there's no such promise to any nation. And as a matter of fact, every single empire will fall. Everything that is not part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and part of the new creation in Christ will burn and be consumed. And let's remember that a moral government or nation isn't necessary to have a thriving church. This wasn't the case when the church took root. I just think of Rome under Emperor Nero. And to this day, the persecuted church all around the world continues to thrive in the midst of moral decay and darkness. Well, rejecting Christian Americanism doesn't mean there's not a place for patriotism. That special affection and endearment for our native land. This is a love of home, of place and neighbor that does its best to fulfill and preserve the biblical vision of justice and peace. It's really good and we should recognize it's good to appreciate and see that our nation was founded on biblical principles, even though not all the founders were Christians. And it's good to grieve to see how far we have fallen away from those roots. It's good to tear up when the national anthem is sung 
and to get chills as you watch a fireworks display synchronized to the tune of the 1812 Overture or God Bless the USA. But just like with family, work, and all other good gifts from God, our love for America can become an idol. And so our patriotism must be measured and it must be kept in its proper place. So then, we ask the question, what should we do? Recognizing that we're kind of in this spot of citizens of heaven and citizens of this earth, what should we do? As as we see our country moving more and more away from biblical truth, we want to do something about it. And I don't think that desire is necessarily wrong. Some even suggest that the reason we've gotten to this place is because Christians have not been doing enough. Many are asking today, including myself, what should we do? How can we fight to keep our freedoms and stave off religious persecution? We've not compared notes carefully, but I think Dan has something to say on this point. But I think that the most important thing we can do is remember our true identity and calling. I know that's not the answer that most Christians are looking for. But as Piper noted, only our heavenly patriotism can order our earthly patriotism. Being deeply rooted in our our heavenly patriotism will not only help to inform us of what we should do as involved earthly patriots, but, but it will also keep our Christian patriotism from morphing into an idolatrous Christian Americanism. So first, remember our true identity. We are citizens of heaven before we're citizens of the United States. Many Christians affirm this. We would all give this answer. Yes, that's true. But their response to what is going on in our country as often displayed on social media, sure makes it appear as if their functional identity is first and foremost American. We must always remember that our ultimate identity is in Christ, to whom by faith we've been united and under whose lordship we gladly serve. And that includes, most importantly, our identity within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is center stage, ground zero for the purposes of God's kingdom. So so living in light of this reality means that we'll be more interested in, devoted to, and excited about what God is doing through His church, both locally and globally, than with what is happening in America. And because Christ's church is comprised of the ransomed people of God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation, we'll feel a deep sense that we're more closely bound to brothers and sisters in Christ in and from other countries and cultures than we are to our closest unbelieving friends or family members here in America. So we remember our identity. Next, we remember our calling. First, to declare the gospel. Our king has not called us to save America. 
but to deliver the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to Americans. We were not given a message for a nation, but a message for individuals. The moral decline in our land serves as a reminder that we must live as salt and light, and we must shine the light of the gospel in the midst of increased darkness. But sadly, too many Christians have confused shining the light with winning a culture war. As Davy has said well, can you imagine Paul suggesting to Roman believers that the solution to changing Roman culture was through boycotts, marches, protests, or legislation? While our victories in court are satisfying and our liberties are precious, we're never told in God's word that our objective is to maintain them or to fix the symptoms of a sinful culture. Instead, we're told to address the root of sin and our culture's need for Christ and his gospel. And remember that faithfulness to this calling doesn't require freedom. Consider that here in America, where we have religious freedom, the percentage of self-identifying Christians is shrinking. While in persecuted places, we see the church multiplying rapidly. So as Davy notes, our great commission from Christ is not dependent upon the First Amendment. Our mission to make disciples remains whether we live in a free democracy or not. And second, we're to live according to the gospel. We can so easily become more concerned with how those in Washington or even those in St. Paul are failing to govern as they should then we are concerned with how we are failing to live as we should. But we're not going to answer to God for the failures of our government. We're going to answer to God for how we live. Davy notes that Paul never once railed against the immoral lifestyle of Emperor Nero or the failures of the Roman government. But he did challenge his readers to live holy lives for the glory of God. Holy believers were, and they still are today, the mightiest weapon in the battle of the souls of mankind. So may we be faithful Christian patriots, never losing sight of our true identity and true calling. And with that right focus, what should we do? Modified here in the words of Abigail Dodd. Sing a hymn. Pray in the Spirit. Teach the truth of God's Word to your children. Respect your husband and love your wife. Open your home and show hospitality. Don't be, don't be frightened, but fear the Lord. Love the brothers. Do good to those who persecute you. Build, build, build on the foundation of Christ. Be confident that He has won the battle. Live like it's true, because it is. Remember the better country to come and beckon others to an everlasting kingdom where there will be no darkness and tears will be finally wiped away. If you ever wondered what you might be like or how you might act,
if you had to live through semi-difficult times, the time of wondering is over. Now is the time for being who we are, God's beloved children, stable and steadfast, offering hope to a lost world. Several years ago, we made the case on a Sunday evening like this for why our church should invest in a new set of hymnals. We discussed the new frontier of hymnody and how Christian music has never been more readily available and easily accessible. That's great, right? Well, yes, in many ways, but maybe not in every way. You see, in in earlier eras, hymnals did the hard work of combing through the good, the bad, and the ugly, and opting to include what the editors thought fit best for their church's hymnal or their denomination's hymnal. The bad and the ugly, more often than not, hit the chopping block, and no one ever knew the difference. Sadly, a lot of the bad and the ugly made its way through, and it's sort of perpetuated through uh, humor even now as we think back to some songs that maybe made their way into our memories and got the pass as a hymn, and there's not a whole lot of truth to them. But nonetheless, the point is there was a gatekeeper. There was a hymnal editor who curated what got printed and what did not get printed. In today's music world, it's as if there's a massive 200,000-square-foot warehouse. I know you probably can't see that super clearly, but there's records and all sorts of sheet music strewn about there. And it's as if Christians today are welcome to come in and peruse this uncurated collection. And hopefully they'll find, rummaging through it all, what they're looking for. Truth. Quality. There's not a huge difference between this reality with respect to music, but applied to how a Christian imbibes and in applied with how a Christian would take in the news. As Dan described just a few weeks ago, the uncurated nature of the Internet allows for a 200,000-square-foot warehouse of information in which Christians oftentimes feel lost as to where they can reliably find truth and quality in terms of understanding the realities of what's taking place in the world around us. Sometimes the frustration builds within us, and our inner Tom Cruise comes out, and we yell, I want the truth! Well, acquiring information about the world has never been easier, but carefully discerning that information has never required more skill and care on our part. As followers of Christ, I'd like to propose three questions for us briefly to consider here as we, as we think about our intake of news of all kinds. First of all, what am I consuming? How am I consuming it? And then why am I consuming it? And by consuming, I mean to use a catch-all term that, that includes everything from reading the paper to an online article, listening to a podcast, watching a YouTube political channel, or watching news on television, all the above. In every way in which we consume the news, what are some principles 
that we can apply here? Well, first of all, what? What am I consuming? I think there's a good word here for us to think about and examine the sources. One of the cries of the Reformation was, ad fontes, to the sources. So much, so much, he said this, and then they said this, and they said, and we always do it because down the line, the telephone game, there was a call to, we need to, to really get back to good sources as much as we can. Well, in a somewhat of a sense, there's a call, Let, let's really think carefully about our sources as much as we can. Perhaps now more than ever, average Christians who want to be appropriately aware and invested in their society and their community are asking in frustration, how can I know what I'm taking in is even true? I mean, this is just frustrating, right? We've all felt this to a degree. Well, ultimately, unless we're reading the Bible, which is 100% trustworthy all the time, we should always be discerning even the most reliable of sources and news outlets. But there are some maybe helpful rules of thumb as we think about consuming the news. First of all, let's think about social media for just a moment. So if Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are, and, or some other platform is your primary way of accessing the news, know that you're walking through that 200,000 square foot warehouse. Just know that. You, you, you know what this is like, right? I mean, you see an article linked by a friend with the line, wow, such a helpful analysis of a difficult topic. Whew, I really needed these insights today. And you think, well, maybe I need those insights today. This will change my life. And right as you're about to click on that article that's going to change your life, you see it. There it is. Teresa Garcia has posted again. One of her classic memes makes you laugh, and you do what every normal thinking person would do. If you, if you know it, you know it. If you know what I mean, Teresa's there, and they're funny. And so you do what every normal person does. You screenshot it, and you send it to someone else to make them laugh. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Well, news received on social media is very often received when our, our brain, and our heart for that matter, is in somewhat of a checked-out mode rather than a critical thinking mode. I think there's something important for us to just know about that. We as humans should know by now that our best thinking does not typically happen when our mind is choosing between whether to click on pictures of our friend's wedding or a cat video or a clip of the game-winning three-pointer the night before. I mean, how many of you like me have started reading a dozen different articles, but because your mind was sort of in that, I'm just a little bit checked out at the moment. You never finished them, right? If social media is our main or only source of imbibing the news, know that it is like trying to read a serious book while riding a carousel at the county fair. <laughs> Needless to say, distractions abound, which makes careful thinking rare. I think it's good for us to know that. So it is really the master distractor of our day. And if some of you see this and you're like, I don't know about that Facebook and Twitter and Instapot or whatever you're talking about, just, just know this is not mine. We'll get to your source of, of uh, information here. But before we, before we move on from social media, one other point. Uh, it, it is somewhat of the hot take zone. Now, what do I mean by that? It's 
a hot take is somebody coming along and say, I've got the four second answer that's gonna solve all the dilemmas and here it is, boom. And they truly think that that's going to settle the mo one of the most complex things that humanity's ever thought about. It's just filled with hot takes. So when you get your news from social media, you're seeing news from whoever's voice is the loudest in that warehouse at a given time. You may only see posts from people you've chosen to follow or to be friends with, uh, but it is curated in its own way. You're subject to the loudest opinions, sometimes the angriest voices, the wittiest critic who gets shared and retweeted the most, and so on and so forth. It's oftentimes either confirmation bias of what we want to hear, as, as Dan mentioned even a few weeks ago, because I only follow the people maybe I can tolerate, or it's depressing such that I'm ready to throw in the towel and move to a private island in the Pacific and escape it all. I mean, how easy it is for us to get lost reading comments of people having verbal sparring matches online. How easy it is for us to be spectators in the stands watching a, a jousting battle in which people are speaking in ways that are downright malicious and in ways they would never speak to one another in person. The gamemanship of social media can easily overwhelm a righteous desire to both give and receive truth, no matter how pure the state of motives might be. Social media as a primary means, uh, outlet of getting our news, can obviously be used as a direct portal to hearing a, a go-to. It is a unique tool. It's an amazing tool. Dr. So-and-so, brilliant mind in this area, um, posts his thoughts about this and that and the other, and alive, I want to know what that guy thinks or that expert here, that's a unique thing in human history. I mean, that's amazing, right? But in a sense, it is uncurated, in a sense that he didn't have to pass a scrutiny of a lot of other PhDs to say, yeah, that's publishable. Let's go with that. It just sort of is my hot take, and I could be wrong, and a lot of people are wrong, often, through this media. So it the media as a whole, it's just good to know these things, right? And not to equate them as always the be-all, end-all. few other means of media to think about as we examine our sources. The mainstream media, whether we hear it on TV, we read it online, I think it is fairly clear to observe that the general direction of the mainstream media is significantly to the left. I think it's equally clear that certain well-known media outlets on the right that are opposed to the left oftentimes make it their marketable niche to be anti that. So for us to say, I despise, let's just say, everything CNN says, so I'm going to go watch everything on Fox News, OAN, Newsmax to really know the facts. Just tell yourself, there's no channel or outlet that, all, that allows you to turn your brain off and just get the facts. It's just not there. That doesn't exist. I think the Pauline principle must hold true. Test everything and hold fast to what is good. And more on this to come as we talk, of, talk about critical thinking skills. But as a rule of thumb for the average person interested in political matters, peruse headlines from a few different websites or newspapers, if that's your thing, and know that they're going to lean one way. Choose some that lean left or right or center. 
and discern. Don't rely on someone else doing all the hard work. Now, at the end of the day, not all of us can give ourselves to hours on end of doing this. We have to rely on opinion and certain people who are synthesizers and, and do analysis, and that's good. But it sure doesn't hurt us to, to strive to do that hard work, to stretch our own minds and hearts in this way. After doing this, consult sources where you know opinion is going to be given, but there's a general trustworthiness there from a position that you know is going to align with conservative Christianity. Perhaps this is, as was shared, even when Andy Nacelli was here, some of these might be things such as Al Mohler's The Briefing or uh, World Magazine's podcast, The World and Everything in It, or certain writers for the Gospel Coalition have very insightful articles uh, quite often, and so on and so forth. Another outlet may be talk radio. Uh, generally speaking, conservative talk radio is going to lend an extremely opinionated angle. So know that if that is the primary source, and maybe it is for some of you, that, and it is for a lot, it is um, tens of millions of listeners daily, and, and know that I, I am getting a very filtered version of reality. And maybe if I stop there and I go no further, uh, that may be all I have time for that day. But to equate it as the reality, I I'm, maybe just would be good for me to know that this is being curated in a very specific way. A subcategory of that may be podcasts. Uh, and in that way, it's more direct in which you can definitely say, I want to know what those people think, and I, would, I think is a unique help in our day and age. Um, our local news uh, is, well, that, that could lead us in a whole different direction, is, is probably as beneficial or more beneficial because it's, it's the reality of your world and the world that you could most impact and directly affect in involvement. And then there's the blog. So discerning, you know, that friend shares you or texts you uh, or emails you a link to an article, and it may be good. But if it's a blog, know that any seventh grader can, can post that. Um, having said that, I don't think I could at the moment, but in theory, anybody can, can post. And so there's a, a, a scattered mix in the, the warehouse of news that it's good for us to think about. Moving on to the second question, how am I consuming? That just the significance as believers that we are understanding how critically important it is to use critical thinking skills in our day and age. In an article we shared with our church a few weeks back, Kevin DeYoung writes several really good practical questions when we think about consuming the news. And this applies across the board to articles or, or video or television. But he writes this, when you're hearing things, this might be a little hard to see here, but does the argument I'm hearing deal in trade-offs or only in the categories of all good and all evil? Are the terms and definitions clearly defined? Can the person fairly state the argument that he's arguing against? Or does it leave that position if they were able to respond saying, no, 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 what are you talking about? I don't even believe that, right? That's a straw man. 
Is he willing to acknowledge any fair points on the other side? I so appreciate that. Even theological books that uh, we'll read together as staff from time to time, and, and when they argue for another point, and they say, these are the legitimate impulses of this other view. We don't agree with it, but this is what, what it says to such a way that those who read it would say, yeah, that's, that's, that's accurate. That's called good thinking. It's honest. It's true. And we need to be thinking in those terms. Is that what I'm reading? Is the argument full of emotive reasoning and ad hominem attack or name calling? The such and such, these people are blah, 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 blah. Do we ever do our best thinking when we're angry? Typically not. Does the force of the argument rely on hard words and, and high passions or on rational arguments and sound evidence? Does this person have a track record of being fair, accurate, and well-researched? Does this person have any credentials or experience that would make him worth listening to? Right? Not everyone who went to college for a couple years should be our go-to source for the most significant matters in life. Right? It's good to think about. However, I would say to worship credentials can equally lead us into a whole other uh, pitfall. Does the argument make sweeping claims based on personal anecdotes? Because I've got two stories that align with my point, therefore it's always true everywhere. Does the argument confuse correlation with causation? Okay, these things are linked, I see that, but it caused it? No, it, no, it didn't. There's all these other factors you didn't even talk about. Think. We have to, as, as people made in God's image and now refashioned into Christ's image, we need to be doing this. We do this, we ought to, as we rightly divide the scriptures. We use sanctified common sense and logical deduction, and we ought to be doing this as we filter our world and think about it. As Dan mentioned a few weeks back, hearing what confirms our biases feels really good. It honestly does. And we have to always use this, this, this sanctified common sense, this good reasoning skills, and avoid non-reactive, impulse-driven motivations when we approach our intake of the news. And then the last question, why am I consuming? Ask some heart-level questions. Ask, as I read the news, what does my heart want in this moment? What do, what do I want? Could it be that, that I'm, I'm tired of thinking about the hard responsibilities God put right in front of me? Things like investing in my family and investing in my church and discipling others and sharing Christ with someone or even fixing that broken doorknob over there? And I'd rather, I'd rather get online and see the people that are really the problem in this world, right? Instead, we prefer to find that nutty thing that just happened in the world where we can get good and angry and forget about the work God's given me now. Oftentimes, ask yourself if pride is where my heart is at. Sometimes our hearts consume news because we just feel like we're staying ahead of everyone else. If we can just know what's, what's coming up or what's cutting edge, that feeling of knowing more can be intoxicating. And we must honestly guard against it. There's also an, a pitfall of entertainment where sometimes our, our heart consumes news because we're just so entertained by it. I mean, we're news junkies, some of us. Much like certain people's fascination with celebrity gossip, political punditry can have a gamesmanship in and of itself. Politics is nauseating for some, but, for so, but can be so, so compelling for others. And if it's compelling for you, 
consider guarding your heart against this idol. Another one might be a special op mission. What do I mean by that? For some, consuming the news and researching the possible scenarios should such and such world event happen can be this sort of duty. Um, I'm fulfilling a role. I'm a watchman on a wall on a special assignment, a responsibility to blow the horn when my, you know, my cohorts need me. Perhaps you've met some of those types as well. That can sort of be the motivation to just, I've got to know it all because I've got to let all them know, whatever that might be. Lastly, might be just fear and worry. Where's my heart? For many, watching the news is like a bad addiction. They know they always feel overwhelmed and discouraged after reading it or listening to it, but they keep doing it anyways. Even when they admit that, is, uh, that they are far more impatient with people, they're cantankerous in their spirits, they're overall ornery because... They're so agitated and angered and frustrated and even irate. And while righteous anger, you know, that part of us that says, I'm against that, that God says, you, you ought to have that. You ought to see wrong in the world and say, no, 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 I'm, I'm not for that. I'm against it. While righteous anger may oftentimes be appropriate to what we hear or see, if the works of the flesh rather than the fruit of the Spirit just start flowing, we may want to do a double take and we may be assured that our hearts are actually out of whack. So as we read the news, perhaps consider asking this question, how can I glorify Christ as I take in the news? How can I glorify my Savior? That is our purpose on earth, right? And as believers, how can I glorify Jesus as I take in the news? Perhaps these simple prayers just as a sample, Lord, help me to love you more as I learn more about this world's need of you. Lord, help me to lead my home or my spouse better as a result of thinking wisely about the world around me. Lord, help me to train my children to see the unique blessing of American politics. I mean, those that have traveled around the world, this is an amazing country. This is an amazing place to live. Praise God. That we don't have to bribe cops every time we get pulled over and get, you know, give them a whole bunch of money just to let us go. I mean, that's generally speaking not what happens. Uh, so Lord, help me to train my children to see this unique blessing of American politics as the responsibility to steward it as a gift of God. Lord, help me to be involved in promoting light in an ever-darkening world by being informed and involved, but never distraught to the degree that about things that I just cannot control. And then lastly, Lord, help me in my intake of the news to increase my longing for your rule and reign on the earth. That is ultimately what we long for. Jesus does it better than the best of human rulers. And it's never going to happen until it's the right time for him. And that's what we long for, is his rule and reign. So I hope these were just some practical but helpful thoughts as we think about this admittedly hard, challenging topic of how do we make sense of the news that we receive on a on a daily basis. Thank you, men. It's um, really encouraging a lot to chew on and some things to uh, consider that are very helpful to us. I want to turn now for a few moments to address, as I mentioned, questions that have been sent in and not anyone directly. 
but just reflecting on some of the things that I think we can hit uh, very quickly. Um, I, I just I thank God for this church. I'm thankful for those of you who have weighed in uh, in varying ways, and I wish I could sit down with each one and have a long conversation about some of these uh, matters, but uh, grateful for you, and, and I'll, I'll just try to address that. So I'm not addressing anyone individually and specifically, but I think as these questions have been asked, hope, hopefully they're maybe asked by others as well and will be helpful. So in a sense here, I'm reflecting on the last time that I spoke on these matters. I realize some of you weren't here. It puts you at a bit of a disadvantage, but hopefully it'll be helpful to you to some degree as well. Number one, I do not believe that conspiratorial fantasies are problematic in our church. My focus on that point was directed more outside our church, although if the shoe fits, uh, I guess you can wear it. But uh, please know that. Secondly, I do not advocate for Christian withdrawal from politics. I believe ways and means are available in our system of government to labor for justice, to labor for morality in our nation. Qualifier, I do not believe we should pin our hopes or on a political party or upon a political candidate. Uh, Christians, evangelical Christians, have done this uh, in really damaging ways in the past, and I think we've got to learn from that and not repeat it. And we must not melt down and get nasty when our chosen representative loses or fails us in some way. Our kingdom is above, and we don't expect sinners to act like saints, and we expect only a few saints to give their lives to politics. Uh, but by God's grace, some will, uh, and, and we'll have that motivation. Number three, we are citizens of a nation ruled by law. In that respect, the United States is one of the best places on earth to live. I um, was talking to a man in just, from another country here recently, and he's just like, what are you people complaining about? He said, where I come from, the police come, they beat you up, they throw you in their trunk, they drive you out of town, beat you again, and leave you there. And nothing ever happens. And I don't think he was joking. I don't think he was making that up. We, ha- we live in a nation that's ruled by law, and it is a, it's a blessing to live under that law. While many of our laws are broken, and while law enforcement and prosecution is imperfect, the system is about as good as it gets on this planet, and we should recognize that, be thankful for it, and defend it. The rule of law is placed in the hands, however, of imperfect people. And we must trust those people to do the job that providence permits them to do. And by providence, I mean that they will be imperfect, they will cut corners, they will violate the law, and they will be unjust at times. We cannot bury our heads in the sand, but we must trust courts to administer justice. We must trust police to administer justice. Again, uh, problems can be addressed, things can be improved, but we don't have a choice but to put our trust on some level in these means. Uh, We have no legitimate option otherwise. So let me get pointed on this. Is it theoretically possible that Trump won re-election? Yes, theoretically that is possible. Did he? No. And I think the, the count is, last I heard, 
55 courts that have refused to consider litigation to overturn election results in various states. I realize there are all sorts of arguments that can say, yes, but this is why they're doing that. This is where they have failed or the like. But we are in a system. It's a system that is ruled by law. There is no guarantee that the law is always right. There is no guarantee that the law is always fairly applied or that an election is above board. In fact, I think we can count on our elections going forward to become increasingly corrupt. But fighting evil with evil is never going to help. There are courts that must be trusted to take up these matters, and perhaps some will. I don't think we should hold our breath on that. I think things are probably going to just carry forward here. But uh, there are corrupt courts. There is a corrupt system It is never going to be absolutely ideal, but we have to have some trust in that system. I'll come back to that in a moment. But there are courts, um, but in a democracy, what we can do is vote. What we can do is advocate for candidates. What we can do is to write letters to the editor and call our representatives. What we can do is pray. But we're in a system ruled by law that is policed and that is led by courts. And we really have no options but to trust that and to leave that in God's hands while we do the things that we can do. I don't think raging against the system is going to get us anywhere. We have to know it's not perfect, but it's as good as we get. Number four, does a presidential candidate's character matter? I believe it does, a lot. I believe immorality of any sort in the life of a president corrupts his administration in systemic ways that harm even good policy. That said, it's rare to see a day where we have candidates where the moral virtue of one is a slam dunk over the other on moral grounds. I I believe this is just opinion, it's irrelevant, it doesn't matter, don't write anybody about this, and it's ancient history, but I believe Bush-Clinton was one of those choices. One of those slam-dunk, stark, moral, contrast elections. Trump-Clinton, Trump-Biden, I think anybody who really gets exercised that one of those is a slam-dunk in moral virtue is just maybe too interested in the policy. Uh, With respect to the moral failings of our former president, what should we do? I think we should weep. That's personal. I know that I don't share, maybe not all share that opinion, but I think we should weep. We should weep that this is where we are, that this is where our nation has gone, and where, where things are at. Now, Uh, If there is disagreement on that with me, certainly feel free to talk with me. But yes, I think it matters a lot. Um, We might look at decency in uh, how one handles oneself and speaks. But what do we do uh, with, with a system where a person steps in and begins ordering the murder of children? What do we even do with morality in this world when it comes to presidency? I'm not sure, and I'll just leave it go.
but some perspectives that I hope are helpful. What on earth is going on? This is kind of second move now. I'm away from those questions that have been asked, but what on earth is going on? Why is our nation in such a meltdown? Where is this heading? Uh, There can be many answers, and I don't mean to address it thoroughly by any means tonight, but I do think there's help in English jurist Lord Moulton 1924 article where he explained that healthy societies depend on three pillars, and I, I think he's right. The domain of law on the one end, the domain of freedom on the other, and in the middle is what he called obedience to the unenforceable. The unenforceable is virtue that comes from within and that a society upholds. For instance, lying and gossip are wrong. Ha- but they cannot really be subjected to law. They can on some, to some degree, but not fully, not in a way that allows a society to, to, to thrive. Or on the other side, or, or I should add as well, pornography, for instance. It's unethical, but it's not illegal. And it is it's consumed everywhere. There, there is a, that obedience to the unenforceable that is necessary. So there needs to be a sense in the society that lying is wrong, lying is hurtful. I have a responsibility to not lie. I don't, do I, that thing convince anybody that's pretty much gone in politics? I mean, lying is just a tool in the tool belt, it seems, anymore. And I, I realize, I understand how the media can twist things and people aren't intending to lie and yet it seems like they are, they're accused. I get all of that. But our, our sense of, the, of truth is, is so compromised. What happens then when that middle begins to crumble? Obedience to the unenforceable is crumbling. And so what happens is law and freedom come in to the vacuum. And law is more policing, more prosecution, more courts, more prisons, more laws. We have to keep passing laws and generating laws to control people, to keep them from killing each other, to keep them from harming others. And so law comes in and asserts itself. We have uh, somewhere in the range of, I I can't remember the statistic, I'm guessing here, but I know it's over 50% of the lawyers in the world. And the reason is only one, there's only one reason, it's because we have money, and partly this system, but uh, the, the point is that law comes in and has to then impose what obedience to the unenforceable is no longer providing in a society. What happens to freedom? There's good freedoms such as travel and speech and philanthropy and entrepreneurial freedoms and the like. These begin to be compromised by the law on the one side. And on the other side, we have unreserved freedom that is, I can express myself however I want to express myself. I can be who I want to be and do whatever I want to do. It, and freedom becomes unhinged because it's not controlled by obedience to the unenforceable. The human heart is letting that go. That middle is crumbling. And we have a world at war. So as, that, as the middle collapses and that vacuum is there, there's rampant litigation on the one hand and unrestrained libertarianism on the other. 
press from both sides then, we find things coming in to enforce what should be coming from the heart and should be pretty much shared as a society. This is why we're seeing such an emphasis in past decades and up till today on political correctness, on wokeness, on Marxist power theories, on severe social pressure, on nonconformity. It's coming in to take over that place that's being lost as we do not control our own hearts. I don't want to be alarmist in any way, but this is a very dangerous situation that has been repeated in many countries that have fallen through the centuries. It is a bit chilling to look at what is happening in our society and compare it with Rome. The parallels are alarming. It is chilling and alarming to look at our situation right now and compare it with Nazi Germany. Communists, before World War II, were pressuring from one side a sense of liberal socialization that the government would provide for all, that all would be equal. This was pressing in from one side and pressing in from the other side were Nazis where they were emphasizing nationalism fueled by conspiracy theories and angry majority Germans who believed they were losing their country. That those conspiracy theories fed, it was like fuel to a fire. And some of them were utterly ridiculous and foolish and some of them were utterly destructive but those theories as they as they fueled the fire and the flames led eventually to a a grasping of power and to violence the parallels to what happened in the capital here recently um, aren't too hard to connect now i don't think they're they are connected i think it's just a reflection of it but it is, it is, it's alarming. As, and we look at it maybe past the capital and look at on the left, Marxists tearing down statues, openly ridiculing majority whites and openly ridiculing Christianity and the like. For there to be a socialist, anti-Christian state is their interest, their stated interest in their pursuit. On the other are militia groups and frustrated white guys soaking up conspiracy theories to fuel the flame, and it's not out of the question that this could turn violent. And I think that's, I, I, I look at what happened at the Capitol and I say that's, that's reflecting that same thing that was going on in Germany. It's just that what happened at the Capitol was just silliness. A lot of fantasy, a lot of you know, weird thinking and not connected if those things get connected and the connections keep getting made on the other side with Marxism, it, it really isn't hard to put the things together and see the difficulties that could come. None of this, I think, is... Well, let me say this, that that, that whole thing that is building in our country is fueled by the fact that we have now, it seems, come to the place where no one trusts anyone. No side is trusted. 
so that everything we see of somebody who thinks differently politically is suspect. And with that suspicion, when we cross that line, it's like a marriage between a man and a woman where they begin to never trust one another. There's no hope. It can't go forward. Because the very best things that are done by the left and the very best things that are done by the right are seen as evil or at least question is what's the real motivation behind it. There's utterly no trust anymore. And in that situation, conspiracy theories begin to fill up what is lacking uh, in evidence. So yes... The media is not fair, as this has been brought out here by Rich tonight. But media coverage is not fair. And turning to insufficiently monitored websites and talk radio is really no alternative. Quick sideline here. If um, I guess I got into this because I was on a jury recently. I don't know why they asked this question, but they asked everybody what was their media intake. I... I <laughs> These jurors all said where they were getting their intake of information and news. I I, I just wanted to raise my hand and say, can I leave and go cry somewhere? This is horrific. I mean, you know, Brother John has some thing he does, and that's where I get my news. (laughs) it It was depressing. But I would encourage anybody, if you, if you feed on talk radio or you feed on some website that's fairly unvetted, read a book. It, it will, it'll stir the same kind of fires, but read a book on why America's falling apart, written by somebody that's somewhat trustworthy. It can give you all kinds of ideas. But there you begin to put together, you actually see a lot more of what's wrong with America and why we're in the trouble that we're in by reading somebody that's thought through it carefully and has been published. Uh, Sometimes what we're taking in is simply the hottest issue for the moment and it gets us really riled up and it's really not taking us anywhere. Just side point, but... And also, I want to support what Rich said there. If, if, you're, if you're into talk radio, listen to both sides. Actually, listening to the side you don't agree with, it's not going to change your mind, but it will help you think more clearly. You'll be hearing things that you have to answer then, rather than just having somebody that's feeding everything you want to hear. Um, I've, um, I'm, gonna, I'm cutting down here. Um, but one thing that I think we've got to recognize is that persecution is here, it's coming, and it's going to be much more heavy in the days to come. We see this uh, taking place in the loss of this center, and, and I think that it's not reactionary, Uh, I think that we have to recognize that we're going to get pinched hard in the days to come in certain ways. We don't know how long it will take. We don't know if there could be some turn in the future, of course. But the trajectory and looking at some of these uh, works that have been done philosophically, the foundations just aren't under us anymore. And uh, that, that should scare us on some level, I suppose, but not really. 
It should just be, that's normal Christianity. There's going to be an opposition that's going to come, become legal, and it's going to become monetary. It's already beginning. Purportedly, for the purpose of controlling Islam, France is pressing forward with a law right now that religious sermons and all, of all religions and denominations must be submitted to the government for monitoring, modern, monitoring for hate speech. And you understand why they're doing that, because there's so much violence in France with, with Islam. But that means Christian pastors are going to be turning in their sermons as well. And let me tell you, Romans 1 is going to be seen as hate speech, as is Leviticus 18. We worked our way in the last two weeks in the adult class through parts of Romans 1, and we've looked at Leviticus 18 uh, in 2016 and went through a series of Romans. I mean, that's going to be hate speech sometime in our life. It's coming. A pastor in Australia in the Nine Marks network of churches, which I'm a partner, he sent us an email here this, I think, last week, where he informed us that in his state of Victoria in Australia, they have just passed the Change of Suppression Conversion Practices Prohibition Bill 2020. That's the name. It's a mouthful. What it is, it says this. I'm just going to narrow it. It doesn't say it this specifically, but here's what's applicable to us. A parent or a pastor who in any way, shape, or form seeks to dissuade a young person away from transgender desires is a crime now punishable by up to 10 years in prison. That's on the books. So if your child expresses some of these ideas, they're getting it at school and they come to you and they're confused and saying, I wonder if maybe I, a boy's saying, I really wonder if maybe I'm I'm a girl inside. The only thing you can do is support that as a parent or be subject to 10 years in jail. Uh, These things are coming at us and they're, they're coming to our shores. And where we are right now as a nation with the socialist agenda, critical race theory, emphasis from the left, radical nationalism from the right, Bible believing churches are going to be seen from both sides as unorthodox, as cultish, or as just in the way. And I, I think we are going to need to recognize that there are things that we can do politically and there's things that we cannot do politically. We're not going to stop a tidal wave. That doesn't mean we should go to our rabbit holes and hide, but it also means that we've got to be realistic about what we can actually influence and change and what we cannot. So I do not advocate running away and seeking to do nothing But I think we have to realistically realize where this nation is right now and what our role is, and that is to shine as light in the darkness. R.C. Ryle, we read it yesterday, or yeah, yesterday, seems like 10 days ago, but yesterday in the the seminar here, he, he asserts that the man of God, all of us, will endeavor to set his affections entirely on things above and to hold things on earth with a very loose hand. I don't think he means hide in a hole, 
by setting your affections in heaven, but I think he means to be, I'm tethered there. I am tethered to the kingdom to come. There is nothing that's going to dissuade me from that orientation. He will not neglect the business of life that now is. There it is. We're going to run away. But the first place in his mind and thoughts will be given to the life to come. He will aim to live like one whose treasure is in heaven and to pass through this world like a stranger and pilgrim traveling to his home. I don't expect this nation to act the right way. I don't expect them to pass the right laws. I don't expect them to be fair and just. I don't expect them to protect life or to protect the virtues that Scripture teaches. But I do expect us as God's people to shine as light in this dark world. And I don't know, has there ever been a time where the light of the gospel can shine any brighter? People are confused, they are lonely, they are lost in darkness, they are following ideas and patterns that are foolishness, and that unenforceable heart issue at the center is gone and crumbling. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ to shine his light in this dark world. Let it shine. That's, that's how I think we should relate to it to some degree. There's a lot I haven't said, a lot I haven't read, but uh, our time's long gone. So let's stand together, be, we'll pray and be dismissed. Lord, I pray that you help us to discern, to be thoughtful, and, and also to even disagree as we have differences of opinion on some things, I, I, I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to continue to track in the same way, faithfully and with unity. I pray, God, that we would keep the first things first and that your cause and your purpose in the gospel of Christ would be central to all that we do, that we would shine as light, that we would be salt in this world and be faithful as your representatives. May we not put our hopes here but I pray that our hopes would be centered in eternity. Bless us this week and open doors of opportunity for us, I pray, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus crucified and risen. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the priority of Scripture, the priority of your kingdom, and the desire that we have to shine as that light in this world. Help us to that end, I pray. Bless us to that end. And I pray that as as difficulties come and as the Uh, the pressures increase against your church. I ask, Lord, that in your mercy we might be found faithful and that you give us ideas on how best to approach this world, how best to influence it for Christ and strengthen us and strengthen this nation and our government and those that have served. And we're thankful for the good that has come in recent years. And we're trusting, Lord, that some good will come in the days ahead. But Father, we do pray with earnestness that you would steer this nation in a better direction than she deserves. And I pray that we would be the faithful, like Abraham of old praying for Sodom, that we would plead that the minority, that the remnant would save the whole. And I ask that that prayer would be answered as long as we live, as long as you give us life, according to your will and purpose. But in any event, may we be faithful to stand for you. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you.